This week on Life and Faith. I would not have ended on this path that I find myself on now if it wasn't for the new atheists. I was giving up on this whole thing of faith. And I was also, I think, moving into the side, not of atheism, but of apathy. If our institutions are all tarnished, we either need redemption or we need replacement. Nothing that we know is normal. But here's an interesting twist to the story. I have this strange loyalty to all former generations. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. And I'm Natasha Moore. And you could think of today's episode as Throwback Thursday or something like that. We're, we're heading back to the early 2000s or sort of, you know, what was it, mid-2000s, Natasha? The sort of heyday <laughs> of new atheism, we remember the new atheists well. Yeah, that's right. About 15 years ago, they were everywhere. This movement was kind of frequently in the media and just in ordinary conversation. And, you know, this was especially dominated by four particular guys, sometimes known as the Four Horsemen, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, Daniel Denner, and of course, Richard Dawkins. And I mean, this was coincidentally the same time that CPX was getting started, right? That was kind of significant. Yeah, it was. It was um, a big thing actually to engage with from a kind of faith culture perspective back then. And their main argument you could summarize as religion was bad for individuals and bad for society, as well as being irrational and baseless and silly. And the sooner we get rid of it, the better. So actually, as you say, just as CPX was beginning, this was all sort of ramping up. And funnily enough, it gave us something to bounce off and engage with. And it brought faith into the spotlight and enabled us to say some things that we thought were worth saying. And so it was an interesting time, actually. I I found it um, engaging and, and some things to sort of wrestle with with people. Yeah, it wasn't necessarily kind of a negative even for Christians, for people who quite strongly disagreed with their premises, because as we're here today, it kind of put things on the agenda that might not otherwise have been at the front of people's minds. But I mean, the conversation has kind of definitely shifted since, right? We don't hear that much from the new atheists these days. It does seem to have changed. And back then, of course, we did a lot on science and faith. That seemed to be a more sort of urgent question for people. But it seems less that now. I think we get more inquiries around the shape of the good life, who we are as human beings, especially as tech develops so fast, those sorts of questions. So it's, yeah, it does seem to have moved to other things. Mm. I mean, that being said, new atheism has kind of been in the news again just recently with um, mm. Ayan Hirsi Ali, who is a prominent figure in the new atheism. She was an ex-Muslim She's kind of been called the plus one horsewoman, which I'm not quite sure how I feel about that. But she recently announced that she has converted to Christianity. Yeah. And that got a lot of attention around the world, as you imagine, and probably not very encouraging for the people she used to sort of sit with and talk about this stuff with. She was put up as a poster person for that movement. But Natasha, you've just read a whole book of essays by people who actually became Christian in some sense via the new atheism. I'm really interested in this because, you know, back in those days, we used to hear people say, I used to be a believer, but, you know, I've read Richard Dawkins and now I think it's all nonsense. Yeah, so the book's called Coming to Faith Through Dawkins, which is an intriguing premise. (laughs) Um, It has 12 stories of people who basically initially did find 
the arguments of new atheism appealing, but then unsatisfying. And they all ended up embracing or maybe re-embracing Christianity as a result. For today's episode, Natasha, you spoke with a couple of those people and we're going to hear from them. The book is edited by Alistair McGrath, the Oxford scientist and theologian, and Dennis Alexander, molecular biologist at Cambridge and founder of the Faraday Institute for Science and Religion. We've had both of them on the podcast before. And we've got Dennis back to talk about the why and how of this surprising book. Well, it's a book in a sense that wrote itself because my co-editor, Alistair McGrath, and I kept bumping into people, you know, in conferences and courses and that kind of thing. And, you know, when you're chatting with them in coffee time, they start telling you something about their life story. And then we just started discovering so many the people we met told us, you know, they had been atheists and agnostics. They didn't care at all about religion at all until they started engaging with the writings of the so-called new atheists, of whom I suppose Richard Dawkins is the best known. And it was really that that triggered off their interest in faith. And then they described how they'd actually become Christians through engaging with the thinking and writings of uh, people like Dawkins and so on. So we thought, this is really interesting. And uh, even from a sociological perspective, sociology of religion, you know, this deserves an airing. And so we networked around and discovered, yeah, there are plenty more of those actually, and uh, ended up with this book of 12 essays written by 12 different authors from five different countries. It's very different backgrounds. They're not clonal in any way. They've all got very different stories. Some are scientists, some are humanities people, others are business, all kinds of backgrounds, but all have this common theme that it was really through Dawkins and others like him, uh, they came to faith in Christ. So what would you say overall is the aim of the book? Because it could be kind of a gleeful in your face thing, right? It's not just meant to kind of reassure Christians that the new atheism failed and their team came out on top or something. Well, we've tried to avoid that. I mean, we've made a strong point to the authors. In no way do we want this to be any kind of a personal attack on Dawkins. When the book first came out, we sent Dawkins a polite letter with a copy of the book and said, look, we just want to underline the point that we just um, find this fascinating. It's an interesting discussion. And in no way do we want to make this any personal attack on you personally. So we wanted to underline that, I think, because we're not interested in confrontation. We're much more interested in getting people to ask questions, really. And one thing I like about the book, some people are very honest about the doubts they have. A few weeks ago, I was down in South Africa and Pretoria. Uh, we had three authors from Pretoria in South Africa. And we had a book launch there, and I interviewed them all. And uh, it was quite fascinating to listen to them. But, you know, they're not uh, triumphalist in any sense. Some of them expressed their thanks to Richard Dawkins for bringing them to Christian faith, which I'm not sure he would be that happy about. But I don't think it's sort of a triumphalism. I think it's more... You know, we had a worldview that didn't really address the various intellectual questions we had. Um, mm. And then we discovered, through your writings, Richard Dawkins, a worldview that just looks better, you know, that's just more rational, that has more evidence. So that's, I think, the attitude of the writers anyway. One of those authors from Pretoria, who Dennis just mentioned, is Johann Erasmus, who's very involved with reconciliation and social development work in post-apartheid South Africa, including as pastor of a multicultural church. 
He describes the cultural climate of growing up Afrikaans. Christianity was very much part of the, you know, the fabric of society and of my family, and I felt the weight of it. So I wasn't just going through the motions of this culturally. I I really felt the weight of it. I just always struggled to believe it though, and I was very much in this Christian culture. The Afrikaner culture back then, it's changed now, but the Afrikaner culture back then was very much like I think one would imagine the Bible Belt in the U.S. to be. Christianity is assumed, and to question God's existence in that context is is something that is a little bit of social suicide. And <laughs> I've got this one story where I think I was in primary school and I went to the school library and there was bizarrely. A book that was titled "Does God Exist?" or at least the Afrikaans translation of that, and I just took the book and I said, "Oh wow!" So if somebody else is asking this question, it's wonderful. And I just started reading it there in the library. And then one of my friends just came walking past and just grabbed the book. What are you reading? And when they saw it, just the horror on their face, like, "How can you ask this question?" That just told me that I need to take these questions underground. I knew that if God exists, it changes everything. It is super important. I was just not convinced. That he did. Johann started university at right around the time the new atheists burst onto the scene. I would say that my first experience of these guys were, I mean, I I think I saw something of their arrogance, but I saw also just something of the confidence, and they were persuasive, and mm. they answered the type of questions that I've been asking. Whereas when I take those. Same type of questions to the Christian circles I found myself in. It was more along the line of if you are chosen, then you will believe. So, did you start calling yourself an atheist? Was that a relief? Did you find that more satisfying? Not at all. I wanted to have faith. I wanted to be a Christian. In my chapter, I also say that at one point I didn't want to have faith because I, I realized that there are some nice benefits in terms of. You know, I, I quote Aldous Huxley, who just said, "I don't want God to exist because it frees me to my own political and erotic desires." And I, I realized, oh man, I mean, if God is not in the picture, then there's no accountability what I do with myself. But on the other hand, I always knew the implications would be a lot of meaning that is just destroyed in the process. Then there was something in me that didn't want to live in a world like that. Hmm. Yeah. So no, I didn't call myself an atheist. One because of the environment that I was in. I think if I, if I lived in Australia, I would have been a full blown atheist.、Um, it's unhealthy if you can't ask questions that you are deeply wrestling with. So, what then brought you back to the direction of belief? So, I had this bizarre encounter one evening. I went to visit friends of ours, and the daughter of. These family friends. She was back from the United States, where where she's been studying, and she's been studying theology and philosophy. And she was always a very bright girl. When I saw her, I just thought, ah, let me quickly test her a little bit on some of the new atheist arguments. Let me ruffle a few feathers, and and then there were no feathers being ruffled because she just snapped back very quickly. And I I told her, have you encountered? The works of Dawkins and Hitchens and and, and Harris etc. And she sighed, like, "Oh, Johan, you need to get yourself some better atheists, really." I'm like, "What? That's such a bizarre. I've I've never had that reaction." And she said, 
I wouldn't mind if you lose your faith because you interacted with you know the likes of uh, Graham Oppie, who's a who's a famous I think Australian atheist, or if you read a, a John Gray or a Michael Roos or a Thomas Nagel or some of these other heavyweights. But come on, man, don't give it up easy for these guys. And I'm like, what? This is so bizarre. Here's a question. She says, it's okay if I can become an atheist. I must just not give it up that easily. I must be persuaded by some of the best guys. And then I said, okay, well, you talk a tough game. And then I just relayed some of the arguments that I've heard from from Harris and from, uh, you know, the new atheists. But one thing that I realized as I was trying to relay those arguments is that they didn't really make arguments. It was a rhetoric of doubt. It was a rhetoric of skepticism. It was a rhetoric of ridicule. But here was a trained philosopher and she would just take it back and say, but that's not an argument. That's just a rant that you just said. I need an argument. You, if, if, if you can't give me an argument, then I can't work with that. But eventually I could articulate, you know, the problem of evil and a couple of other arguments. And what she then did is she said, I think we can frame that stronger than what you just framed it. And I remember being taken aback by that as well. <laughs> what a bizarre thing to say. And then she said, so I would frame the, the problem of evil like this. And I mean, I can't remember the details, but I remember her just you know, ripping through me philosophically and just saying, I, I, I think this is the best way. And I'm like, yeah, 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 that one, that one. You must, you must answer that question. That's a really good, <laughs> good objection. And then she did. And I mean, I didn't understand a lot of it, but that sort of set me on this path of one discovering just a rich Christian intellectual tradition. And there she named names that I've never heard before, like, you know, an Alistair McGrath and uh, a William Lane Craig and, I remember she said, you and the church has been dealing with these questions for centuries. Exactly this question that you're asking. You're not that smart. There's nothing new about it. Mm -hmm. But it set me on this path of discovering this rich intellectual tradition. And then along the way, it wasn't necessarily the intellectual tradition that pushed me over the, you know, over the, this faith gap, so to speak. But, but it definitely created this environment in which I felt for the first time safe and I didn't feel mad wrestling with these questions that I was wrestling with. When I asked Johan why he finally became a Christian and why he remains a Christian today, he says there are a lot of different elements to it. There is good reason for faith. There are brilliant minds historically and today that ended up on the side of Christianity. And some of those arguments I found very persuasive. The moral argument to this day, you know, the whole idea that in a material world, in, in, in just a material world, without any reference to God, it's very difficult to talk about morality in any objective sense of the word. I realized that meaning, if, if you do not have God, then nothing that we are doing, whether it's this conversation or whether it's helping somebody across the street or whether it's giving to the poor, whether it's raising a family well or whether it's paying your taxes, whatever it is, in the bigger scheme of things, it's, it's ultimately meaningless. So those arguments... I found persuasive and I found persuasive to this day and they are constantly sort of running through my head as I wrestle with with life. The other thing that just blew my mind was the scholarship that has been done on the resurrection of Jesus. It is mind-blowing. You know, this claim that we've just heard over and over and over again mm. is rooted in history. So the intellectual stuff definitely played a big role, but... I can't say that that is the only thing that pushed me 
you know, over that chasm. To a large extent, it is seeing the difference that Christianity makes in the lives of Christians who are in really difficult circumstances. Yeah, in the townships in South Africa, in Africa, we, we know something of poverty, we know something of, of struggling. But on the other hand, I would say, Natasha, to you Australians, that we don't have a meaning problem in South Africa. In Australia, I think you guys have a meaning problem. Many people are, whether they are conscious or unconscious about it, they are nihilists and sort of just going through the motions. And there's not a lot of meaning. But, but yeah, in the township, through suffering and hardship, people have meaning. And it is God that creates that environment for them to persevere and to keep going. It makes a real difference. I've seen it in terms of forgiveness, where we have to wrestle in South Africa with, with our past to try and figure out how to do this country together with white and black and uh, with a very divisive and polarizing history and how people forgive. And it's impossible. It is impossible that people can forgive. It, it must be supernatural. I don't think there's any sort of natural way of explaining it. So to see the difference that Christianity makes on that level, I think has pushed me into the, the arms of Jesus. You're listening to Life and Faith, and Natasha is speaking to some of the people involved in the new book, Coming to Faith Through Dawkins, which charts the experiences of people who ultimately had the exact opposite reaction to the new atheism to what was intended. Yeah, and all the stories in this book are quite different from one another. They're by men and women. They're all from different places and backgrounds. One of the stories heavily features psychedelic drugs, perhaps unexpectedly. Another is all about evolution and enchantment with the natural world. But it's also remarkable in some ways how similar the stories that they tell are. So as well as Johan Erasmus, Natasha, you spoke with Aniko Albert. Tell us about her. Yeah, so she was a teacher for many years. These days she's kind of retired, but she's managing editor of the magazine God and Nature and also director of an emergency assistance organisation. Her upbringing under Soviet communism was very different, as you might imagine, to the cultural Christianity that Johan experienced growing up Afrikaans. Here's Aniko. I was born in Hungary in 1968, so while the socialist slash communist period in that country uh, when it was part of the Soviet bloc. My parents were not religious, but every part of the family came from a Roman Catholic background. But even my grandparents, at some point, I'm not sure exactly when, stopped uh, going to church. So I grew up completely without any exposure to religion other than what was still present in the literature, the music, um, the churches that were everywhere that you could go and visit when we, we would go and look at them as tourists. So I grew up knowing that there was a thing called Christianity, but I saw it as part of old history. Aniko says that religion was not illegal as such, but we might say it was frowned upon. Certainly there were no social advantages to being a Christian. When I was in high school in the 80s, first of all, things were opening up more. And faith started to become 
perhaps for some people cool or at least interesting, or it was something that you heard more about. And I had a number of classmates or friends that suddenly started talking about going to church. Some of them converted, but some just started talking about it as if it had always been part of their family's lives. So that was certainly happening back then. It did not happen to me at the time, but I was curious about faith and specifically Christianity for a long time without being able to come, you know, to a sense that that it could be real, that it could be true for me. When Jesus Christ Superstar came out in movie theaters in the 80s, Aniko went to see it again and again. She was fascinated. At this time, she also took a university course on textual criticism of the Gospels taught by a Marxist. Jesus kept turning up, but she didn't really know what to make of him. Then her life took a turn. So I married a student from Jamaica, the Caribbean, who was studying in Hungary on a scholarship. And after we both graduated, we went together to Jamaica. And certainly in terms of religion, it's a very different country. The majority are Christian. Christian practice is normal. It's part of everyday conversation. So being not a Christian, you kind of feel a little bit left out, especially among women, because they go to church a lot more than men in that society, but men are Christian as well. So it's something that I just adjusted to without sometimes feeling that it would be good to be a Christian, it would be good to believe all of this. Or sometimes thinking of myself as being, well, culturally Christian, but I don't really believe most of this. Aniko and her husband briefly moved back to Hungary, where Christianity was becoming way more mainstream, but in a quite nationalistic way that she found disturbing. They moved again to the US, arriving just a couple of weeks before 9-11 happened. And that was when the public conversation around religion started to change dramatically. Aniko's husband was on a work visa, but she wasn't able to work. And looking after young kids in a new country she started spending a lot of time online. In particular, she started reading a lot of atheist blogs, making a lot of online atheist friends, and she came to embrace that position for herself. I wondered what she thought of The God Delusion, Richard Dawkins' book, when it came out in 2006. I was a little disappointed. I just expected more. I guess I was right in the middle of reading more and more about this, signing up for this, following P.Z. Myers, signing up for the Richard Dawkins Foundation, but also just talking to other people, just regular people, uh, mostly Americans, about what was going on and why religion was wrong and why believers were wrong and what was wrong with them, right? But I wasn't that happy with the God delusion. Part of it was that I really love Dawkins' writing, The Ancestor's Tale. I think it's still one of my favorite books. It's just storytelling about science. I just really liked his style. And I felt that The God Delusion was just not in that poetic and really sweeping style, but rather just very angry, 
and very doctrinaire. And there were things, even though I was, you know, looking for confirmation that I was right, I was correct by rejecting religion and being an atheist, there were things I didn't agree with. I didn't agree that the Bible was the most terrible book. I didn't agree that people who taught their children religion were abusing them. I didn't agree that what he called sophisticated theologians or moderate Christians were just as bad as the fundamentalists. And slowly I started seeing more of those things in the arguments of the people that I was talking to. One of them was things about history that I knew were not true, like all wars were started by believers or were fought over religion, things like that, that, you know, just didn't make any sense. And the whole thing about delusion, I just didn't think that was a good way to describe the majority of people in the world. That didn't make sense to me. I just mm -hmm. felt that if we were calling ourselves humanists, which some of the atheists do, humanism, you know, requires that you, you know, look at humans and accept the way they are in the world and you're interested in the way they see the world and, you know, the, their culture, sort of see it in, in a more positive way than declare it delusion. So there are some kind of cracks appearing in your atheism there, but how did that then lead you on to or back to Christian faith? So as I was talking to people about these things that I thought they were saying and, and were wrong, I got a lot of pushback. So I suddenly became a bit of a traitor because I questioned some of the tenets. And then I suddenly realized that there were people in the conversation who knew a lot about these things, and they knew a lot about science, and they were Christian. All of this was online because I'm kind of an introverted person. But when I had people there who were talking to me, who were examples of Christians who are very smart, very educated, and you can have a conversation with them about what your problems are with religion or what it is that you don't understand. And they answer in a smart, intelligent, uh, well-informed, but also friendly way. That's kind of where it started. It was the people from the other side who started talking to me as a friend that basically started moving me in that direction. Was there a moment where you became a Christian, you decided that you already believed? It wasn't a single moment. It was a fairly slow process where I just became more and more open. I read more and more. Of course, I read C.S. Lewis and Francis Collins's book, The Language of God. And I kept talking to people and I was back in that phase for a while where I was just really curious and interested. But slowly I started thinking that it would be really good. It would be a good thing if I could be a Christian, but I still didn't feel that I believed. And then I had 
one of these experiences that people sometimes speak about, there were just little moments where I would, there was one where I would look up at the trees and I saw something that was just, I felt like there was something else. I was looking into this other world that I didn't think could exist. And I know that's one of those things that people will laugh at if they've never had an experience like that. But I had a few of those. One day during one of these experiences, they all happened in nature, interestingly. This one was on the beach. I just told myself that just out of nowhere, the words, I believe in God, just came, just came to me. And I said, okay, well, if I said it, it must be true. And I kind of mm -hmm. took it from there. I also started going to church, not every Sunday, but whenever I was able to. Of course, the people were incredibly nice and welcoming. And uh, I spoke to the pastor. I told him that I used to be an atheist. I am now theist. I believe in God, but I'm still not sure how Jesus comes in at that time. And he said, don't worry about it. You are here because Jesus is calling you to be here. So just go along that path and you will get there. And that's, that's exactly what happened. In many ways, the new atheism and atheism in general kind of skews quite male. Yeah. I wonder what your experience was like as a woman, particularly kind of in these online conversations. Was it mostly men? Did that kind of make a difference to how you engaged or how they engaged with you? Yes. Yeah, so I certainly did notice that most of the strong atheists and the very argumentative atheists were male. It was not that hard for me in an online setting because you're not physically present. So um, there was one point that I know some people thought I was a male. I was using my name, Aniko, which ends with an O, and they didn't look it up. So they just thought this must be a, a male. So at some point I was addressed as a male and then I corrected it. But I certainly noticed that. I didn't realize how strongly it skewed male and how sort of a sexist machismo was behind some of it until later. I mean, there were blogs that I was reading by people I didn't know, and then there were people I was talking to. Um, I wouldn't say any of what I said about racism or misogyny was true for the people I was actually talking to. It's interesting to me how the new atheism looks now, looking back on it. I asked Johan as well what he makes of the new atheists these days. I liked them. I liked the fact that people were talking about faith, that they were talking about issues of origin and meaning and destiny, and they did it in a very bullyish way. And there was something very immature. And it's sad, I've never seen... And it, it might be there, it might be there, but I've never seen a Harris or a Dawkins saying, ah, you know what, we were a little bit zealous and we were really angry at 9-11 and some of the abuses of religion that we saw and, and we were just going, you know, at it. But obviously it's more nuanced than that and we need to sort of just check ourselves. 
if you have that clip, please send it to me. <laughs> I always say, when I was in my second year of varsity, I was the most intelligent I've ever been in my life. I was the most intelligent human in this world. And <laughs> there is this arrogance because you've got a few big words, you know, that you've now learned and you use it as a weapon against everything. And you just, but you've got this deep arrogance. And it seems to me that a lot of the new atheist literature was written by second years. They know everything, but they're not making arguments. They are just sort of creating this world of ridicule and etc. But having said that, I prefer the second year university students to the non-second year university students because these conversations do matter. And the new atheist did us a tremendous favor by keeping the conversation alive. I would not have ended on this path that I find myself on now if it wasn't for the new atheists, I was giving up on this whole thing of, of faith. And I was also, I think, moving into the side, not of atheism, but of apathy. Atheism is not always the biggest problem. If somebody is reading atheist literature, if somebody is a card-carrying atheist, I would take that guy 10 times over a person who's apathetic and just says, meh, whatever, you know, faith, God, who cares, blah, blah, blah. I prefer the guy who says there's no God and I'll give you the reasons why there's no God. That guy is wrestling with reality and I've got respect for that. And in that sense, the new atheists um, helped us. Coming to faith through Dawkins is not only or specifically about Richard Dawkins, though he and his book, The God Delusion, do feature prominently in several of the essays and, of course, in many people's lives around the world. Before we go, I was curious about whether Dawkins himself has engaged with the book. I asked Dennis Alexander whether he's had a response from him. Not yet. No, we haven't. Uh, I do look at my Pigeon Hill now and again in the college <laughs> just to see if there's any response. <laughs> uh, there's nothing so far. I mean, you know, I suspect if he's wise, he'll ignore it. <laughs> 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 I mean, if he started tweeting or Xing or whatever it is now, then, of course, we'd sell a lot more copies, as he well knows. Mm, that's true. It's <laughs> so, uh, a catch-22 you know, for him. I'm very happy to have a discussion, and obviously, Alison McGrath has debated with him several times, and you know he, he's met plenty of Christians around, and mm. he likes hymns. Actually, I know he loves hymns. He goes to chapel sometimes and sits at the back, you know, and listens to the hymns. He go. calls himself a cultural Christian, you see. So mm. he he likes the culture of Christian faith, and appreciates the tolerance that he finds within the Christian community, and uh, he's had some wonderful discussions recently. For example, with Francis Collins, who used to be director of the National Institutes of Health in the USA, there's a very nice uh, film discussion where he was very respectful of Francis Collins as one of the leading scientists in the world. And they had a great conversation. And I think that's a good sign myself. Are people still now with the publication of the book coming and saying, this is my experience, I came to faith through Dawkins? Yes, it's interesting that that is the case. So actually last night I was uh, over listening to our Regis Professor of Divinity giving a talk. Good crowd there. We had a drinks reception afterwards. It was um, hosted by the Faraday Institute here in Cambridge. A guy came up touching a copy of Coming to Faith Through Dawkins in his hand. And he said, oh, he said, it's nice to meet you. And then he pointed to the book and he said, I'm one of those. I said, oh, what do you mean by that? And he said, I've been a scientist all my life and I was an atheist. Uh, quite a happy atheist, you know, I wasn't particularly uh, looking for other worldviews or something. Until he said, I read The God Illusion in 2006. And he said, that really shook my faith in atheism. And I went on a search and I became a Christian. 
And I just wanted to tell you. <laughs> I said, oh, that's really interesting. Thank you for that. I said, maybe we should start a volume two. This has been Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart, and Natasha Moore. Our thanks today to Dennis Alexander, Johan Erasmus, and Aniko Albert for coming on the podcast. The book is now available wherever you get your books from. It's called Coming to Faith Through Dawkins, 12 Essays on the Pathway from New Atheism to Christianity. We'll link to it in the show notes. Do share this episode with people you think might enjoy it or who need to know about this book. You can always get in touch with us by emailing podcast at publicchristianity.org. And our thanks as well, of course, to our producer, the dauntless Alan Douthwaite. Next week. I've never seen an angel. I had one standing behind me once, but I didn't dare to look around. I wasn't afraid of it. I knew that it wasn't something bad, but it was something tremendously powerful.